afternoon, hello, and welcome to COVID-19 in rural America. Challenges, solutions, and tele-IC support. This week's chess webinar on COVID-19, advice from the Frontline webinar. I am Jim Guy, I'm a professor of medicine at the School of Medicine in Hanover, New Hampshire, and a critical care bedside and tele-ICU provider at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and its VA affiliate in White River Junction, Vermont. Today, I'm honored as chair of CHESS Disaster Response and Global Health Network to moderate a timely and interesting webinar on the unfortunately often overlooked aspect of this pandemic, and that is its impact on rural, less populated areas. We'll be focusing on rural New England and Texas, but much of what we discuss applies to many areas across North America and globally. This topic is especially relevant today, as in the U.S., we're seeing the rapid spread of disease from metropolitan areas, which often have robust healthcare systems to help cope, to rural settings where resources may be limited and thus the impact potentially great. After some brief introductions, we'll look at the challenges of providing critical care in rural areas, the impact of COVID-19 on two rural settings, few case examples, and lastly, we'll offer some innovative ways to support patients, providers, including nurses, and healthcare systems in rural settings using tele-ICU. I'll then wrap up with the Q&A sessions that include some previously submitted questions. Please also submit your questions to the Q&A section, and we'll answer by the panelists either live or at the end. I'd like to start with some brief introductions by the speakers themselves, and then we'll dive right into the presentations. I've noted this presentation for myself doesn't reflect any official position of the of the U.S. government. So, Vinka, you first, please. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. So, my name is Vinka Chow. I'm an anesthesiologist and intensivist at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center in New Hampshire. Um, so, I work in the ORs, surgical ICU, and tele ICU. And I previously trained at Stanford Brigham and Women's Hospital and Duke University Hospital. So I will begin uh, by giving a background on health systems in rural America before COVID, which face a unique set of conditions and challenges. Um, slide. So firstly, in terms of the demographics, uh, these rural hospitals generally serve an older and sicker population that's likely to have health insurance. And a greater percentage of rural residents are older than age 65. 20% versus 14% in urban centers. And one third of adults report having uh, a disability in rural areas, which is 9% higher than uh, those in urban areas. And in fact, one in 12 adults in rural areas report having more than three disabilities. And we know that people with disabilities are three times as likely to have heart disease, stroke, diabetes, or cancer. Slide. Um, so similarly, overall, even younger adults have higher rates of comorbidities such as hypertension, obesity, cigarette smoking, um, and these are high-risk health conditions that place patients who contract COVID-19 to be at greater risk of developing complications, and this is in the context of many of these residents having less access to health care. So this graph on the left um, shows that among residents of rural areas, 26% of those um, younger than age 65 have these high-risk health conditions as compared to 20% in urban areas. Similar trend for those above age 65 here on the right. And as well in rural areas, intergenerational households are more common, so children can bring the virus home to their more vulnerable grandparents. Slide. In the face of a pandemic and potential surge in patient volume, rural hospitals start off with a much lower capacity than urban hospitals. So this table from the American Hospital Association shows on the bottom row that um, rural areas with population of less than 10,000 in comparison to more urban centers have fewer hospitals, fewer acute care beds and ICU beds. And Overall, rural areas have approximately 1.7 ICU beds for every 10,000 residents, um, which is about 60% of urban areas, um, and at, um, at 2.8. So urban areas have about 2.8 ICU beds per 10,000. Slide. So this map shows visually the number of ICU beds per capita with a lighter blue in indicating fewer beds. So regions with fewer than one ICU bed per 10,000 um, include areas around Santa Cruz in California, Fort Collins in Colorado, North Dakota, Texas, et cetera. 
And on top of the lower capacity, rural hospitals have been closing at an alarming rate. So between 2006 and um, 2017, rural areas have lost 20% of their hospital beds, uh, with the areas of higher poverty being a bit more. Next slide. So since 2010, 130 rural hospitals have closed. This map shows that most of these closed hospitals are in the south, 60%, where poverty rates are higher, people are less healthy, and also less likely to have any sort of insurance. The graph on the bottom shows from left to right um, the number of closures from the year 2005 to 2020. Um, the yellow bar is this current year. And you see the upward trend over the past five years. Um, next slide. So many factors contribute to the hospital closures and the vulnerability of rural hospitals to new stresses. So starting from the bottom of this pyramid, uh, persistent problems include location volume, uh, more uninsured patients or those who are on Medicare, Medicaid, and also workforce shortage. More recent uh, stresses include rising cost of drugs, worsening poverty, increasing regulatory burden, uh, Medicaid expansion, and this effect on the finances. And emerging challenges include the opioid epidemic and um, rising violent crimes. Next slide. So as the culmination of all of this, profit margins have dropped over the years. And in fact, 38% of rural hospitals are unprofitable. And part of what drives that are lower occupancy rates and also the accruement of high standby costs for services that are infrequently used, um, but which hospitals are required by accreditation agencies to be able to provide. And as well, rural hospitals charge a lower markup cost for services than urban hospitals in general. Next slide. So this map shows um, hi highlights states with hospitals that are at high financial risk and thus risk of closure. So 21% of rural hospitals across the nation are at risk, and 73% of these stressed hospitals are in the south, followed by the Midwest. Next slide. Another challenge for rural hospitals facing a potential surge of critically ill patients is the severe shortage of intensivists, and this applies everywhere. A survey study conducted in 2015 found that nearly half of acute care hospitals have no intensivists, and that the shortage is much more pronounced in rural areas. Um, and a survey of hospital medicine leaders found that in many regions, um, ICU patients are taken care of not by privileged intensivists, but by hospitalists. And in fact, half of surveyed hospitalists um, in rural areas report that they are the sole provider of critical care in their hospitals. Next slide. So in view of all of these challenges in finance, infrastructure, and workforce, many analysts have projected fears of the crushing toll and deadly checkerboard that a COVID-19 surge could bring across rural America. Next slide. And um, advance again, please. Um, so as we have seen after the pandemic's initial sweep across major cities in the U.S., um, starting from April, we have had an increasing number of cases in rural areas. So we first saw outbreaks in meat and poultry um, processing facilities in the Midwest, and then attacked the Sun Belt with a vengeance this summer. Next slide. This graph shows the number of cases per 100,000 residents from March until now. Um, so since late April, um, in dark green, Western Kansas and Oklahoma have surpassed New York and New Orleans in the number of cases per capita and continues to lead in numbers. Um, Central Missouri has now claimed second place since mid-July and currently after New York and New Orleans, the next hotspots are once again rural areas in southern Minnesota and central Iowa. Next slide. As of last week, 98% of uh, rural counties in U.S. had reported positive COVID-19 cases, uh, with a current case rate of 99 per 10,000 residents and a death rate um, of 2.25 per. Um, next slide. So one driver of rural transmission is the work conditions. So this picture of the Tyson meat processing factory uh, shows workers in the assembly line standing in close proximity. And in fact, among the 25 rural counties that have the highest rates of COVID-19 cases, um, 20 of these counties have large meat packing plants or uh, viruses. Um, and, um, oh sorry, meat plants or prisons which have similar conditions. So next slide. And similarly, agricultural workers may also have to work in close proximity and have very poor access to hand washing facilities. 
Uh, many are migrant workers who live in overcrowded dormitory-style housing, also with poor sanitation to start with. And um, some Native American groups have also been severely affected, most notably the Navajo Nation. Um, so they had actually reached the highest per capita case rate and surpassed New York and Wuhan. Um, and in several states, even though Native people may make up only a small percentage of the state's population, they account for a disproportionately high burden of COVID-19 cases. Next slide. So to take care of the surge of patients in rural areas with few hospitals, patients are being taken care of in motels, gymnasiums, and even if there are enough hospital beds, if you have resources, personnel, and just simply lack of experience in taking care of large numbers of critically ill ventilated patients at one time, raise significant challenges in being able to provide effective care. So this multi-center cohort study of 2,215 COVID-positive adults um, found that hospitals with fewer than um, with fewer ICU beds have higher mortality. So those with fewer than 50 ICU beds, uh, which is still a pretty high threshold, um, have an odds ratio of 3.28 uh, for death at 28 days compared to hospitals that have more than 100 ICU beds. Next slide. So organizations such as the National Rural Health Association have created early on um, the COVID-19 Assistance Center with a goal to help triage needs, provide knowledge and support with uh, resources like PPE. Next slide. But COVID-19 has far-reaching impact on rural healthcare infrastructure, um, even on hospitals that may have had none too few COVID cases. It has amplified existing financial pressures on an already very fragile system um, due to um, drastically reduced revenue from canceled or deferred uh, cases, uh, and also high expenditure for PPE and other equipment. Um, so the NHRA's uh, VP for member services called it the COVID paradox, where we had to paradoxically both continue to prepare for a surge, uh, yet assist all these rural providers hemorrhaging cash where, with routine work having all but stopped. And in fact, between March and June of 2020, uh, four rural hospitals had already closed. So in recognition of the struggles facing um, rural hospitals, we can advance and um, the CARES Act designated a special $10 billion allocation for rural providers and increased Medicare for payments for COVID-19 patients. Next slide. And just last week, um, the White House issued an executive order to improve rural health and telehealth access. Um, next slide. So these policies and mandates from the government reflect recognition of the added financial strain and unprecedented challenges that COVID-19 has placed on rural health systems. Um, with the potential to further accelerate uh, hospital closures. This would not only decrease um, healthcare access, but also drain resources and jobs from these communities. But hopefully the attention that is drawn to the situation by COVID-19 will be an impetus um, to implement effective change and preventive measures expeditiously. Um, but now let's dive deeper to hear details about fighting COVID-19 on the front. Thank you, Vinka. Um, great to spend some time with everyone this afternoon. My name is Stephen Sergener. I'm a professor of anesthesiology uh, with an appointment at the Dartmouth Institute uh, here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. Uh, and I work with uh, uh, Dr. Guiling here uh, in the tele-ICU and I currently attend at the ICU in the, our cardiovascular unit. I'm just gonna spend a few minutes talking about our program that I medically direct. We have a tele-ICU system that we started in uh, rural Northern Vermont and New Hampshire uh, for the past year. Next slide. Here are the uh, pieces and parts of the puzzle that we believe we can bring value to the population of rural uh, New Hampshire and Vermont as we try to do the right thing to, to, to provide value to rural intensive care units in our area. We, we're working hard to keep care local and that can help increase contribution margins as was being described just a few minutes ago uh, by keeping revenue in the in the hospitals when appropriate when they're able to give the right care and keep those patients near their family we believe we're able to help the keep the standard of care up to speed and uh, as a result reduce uh, lower mortality rates uh, you know achieve the lower mortality rates by doing so we also are really noticing less clinical burnout and more excitement at being at the bedside of all the facilities that we're working with, that people feel like they can take care of these patients, uh, they get more comfortable with things in, in hospitals and ICUs that honestly have 
over time had some deterioration and, and had the standby problems and the empty bed problems that we just heard about. We think the collaboration is nothing but positive and, and at times we're seeing shorter length of stay as well. Next slide. Just to highlight some of the keeping care local pieces, what we've done here in uh, rural New England is we have the problem with Dartmouth-Tishcock Medical Center of just having too many patients that need to get referred here for the number of beds we have. Um, we're actually expanding our inpatient capacity as a result, but we still are looking for every opportunity that we can as we're uh, provided a request for transfer to redirect those patients appropriately and timely to the hospitals and the intensive care units that we work with. At one of our sister hospitals, uh, Catholic, uh, Ch uh, Cheshire Medical Center, we've had an incredible increase in their census uh, with, with a result of reduced mortality rate that, that you'll see in a minute. Um, and Southwest Medical Center down in Bennington, Vermont, has been able to really keep patients that they've identified as key patient populations for them to, to maintain, and that has really helped stabilize their program. Next slide. As I mentioned, with mortality rates, we've had improvement in mortality at, at Cheshire and, and uh, excellent hospital mortality ratios since we opened our program with Southwest Medical Center. Here at our academic medical center ICUs, which we also cover with our tele-ICU program, we are seeing preliminary data that would, would suggest that we're having a positive impact on ICU mortality, even at highly uh, staffed and, and excellent staffed uh, ICUs at an academic medical center. Next slide. This is a, a, just a quick map to show you the areas that we're working with. We also have Littleton uh, Hospital in uh, northern New Hampshire and St. Albans in northern Vermont uh, are on our, our program as well. Next slide. As COVID began to hit us uh, in early March, and we had some early patients and experience with this that we'll show you in a few minutes, uh, our goals were really uh, initially to limit uh, exposure to patients uh, and staff interactions as we could by, by doing things that didn't need to require uh, staff going into the rooms. That had a resultant positive effect, as we all recall, on preserving PPE, uh, personal protective equipment, at a time where Things were scarce and we were trying to re redesign our, our new normal uh, with, with how we protected ourselves and protected our patients and their visitors. Uh, we wanted to provide our bedside teams with additional support. Um, as I have been describing, we really did want to optimize our regional critical care capacity to keep patients with COVID in their local hospitals when feasible and move them to the ICU, the medical ICU at Dartmouth when necessary. And finally, we really also saw the opportunity here. Um, I serve on our state disaster medical advisory committee in New Hampshire uh, to the governor's office and our, our health commissioners. And we really saw the opportunity to support the hospital crisis standards of care if we were to enter that type of problem as has happened in other areas of the country. We feel more prepared with this tele-ICU system uh, for supporting that set, that set of dilemmas and challenges. Next slide. Uh, we introduced a new program on top of our uh, contractual program with our tele-ICU during March and April in response to the public health emergency uh, declarations in both New Hampshire and Vermont by doing a tele-ICU CART-based program that we rapidly deployed, uh, many thanks to the uh, emergency orders that allowed more rapid privileging of folks use of tele-ICU and telehealth uh, billing practices uh, that were provided in, in both our states and, and federally as well as many of us are aware. We provided a 24-7 program initially. We backed it down to 12 hours a day. Currently, if we see a surge in COVID cases in New Hampshire and Vermont, we will, we will ramp this program back up to 24-7. Uh, but our goal was really to just provide rapid access to even more rural hospitals and more uh, smaller critical access hospitals so that they would have access to uh, state-of-the-art uh, nursing and physician uh, collaboration as helpful to get their patients initially stabilized, confirm their plans of care, and move the patient back uh, to Dartmouth or another tertiary care facility as uh, appropriate to continue the care after st initial stabilization. Next slide. We also did some internal support. We supported our hospice program who, who had a, a fairly business, busy COVID service during March and April. We did some telecarts to some of the rooms that were very difficult to see from 
a line of sight from the nursing uh, stations, and that allowed us to keep an eye on these patients again without nursing colleagues needing to go in and out of these rooms burning PPE. Uh, we did the same type of support to the emergency department, and uh, these were uh, these were nice uh, assistances. They weren't particularly time-consuming for us in our hub, but they were really reassuring to those patients and a big help to, the, to our hospitals who were very busy and stretched during that time period and to our nurses uh, and respiratory therapists out on the floors as well, looking for those patients that were starting to have that early deterioration that was described uh, at, at back in March of folks going from nasal cannula to deterioration very rapidly. And uh, again, this is not particularly active for us right now given our, our COVID numbers, but we're ready to stand these programs back up and ramp them up as necessary. Next slide. With the launch of these carts, we have a map that looks now more like this. We have a lot of, of uh, our smaller critical access colleagues um, covered with a program that we could use if there were to become uh, a breakout of COVID anywhere in our two state areas. We feel much more comfortable that we have them covered than we did um, back early March. Next slide. This is just an overview of what we do with our console process. It's not a uh, continuous monitoring effort like our tele-ICU program, but we would receive a call, respond to that patient, collaborate with the physician and nursing uh, group at that local facility, gain information about the patient uh, by phone and by video, and then uh, make a recommendation which we can fax back to them. And uh, we have this set up with full full credentialing for the physician so that we can send a bill uh, when that would be appropriate. Next slide. Within our hub, we also did a lot of planning with our uh, critical care uh, unit leadership at Dartmouth-Hitchcock to be prepared to, to ramp up our hub if we see a big uh, surge in COVID. We are prepared to bring a respiratory therapist into our hub and have them deployed there to Keep, be able to rapidly assess uh, vent settings without going in and out of rooms and to use the bedside providers in those, in those settings to make adjustments as necessary and to do checks of, of the nutricular tubes and whatnot as needed. Uh, we also have a uh, second uh, physician and second nurse in addition to our primary team that can be ramped up if uh, we had to start opening more and more COVID units. We've been fortunate so far to not have to do so, um, but we are prepared uh, when necessary. Next slide. Uh, this is just a summary of, of some of these changes. Um, and we even have gone to the extent of saying that if, if we started to have a lot of illness among our providers, which would be, again, we've been fortunate not to have, we would use remote access uh, from home to run our tele-ICU if necessary. Again, that hasn't become necessary. We are sending out a daily report with uh, the number of positive cases in our units and our current census and what level of intensity those patients are receiving, which has really been very helpful for everyone to understand our day-to-day -day, uh, efforts. Next slide. Move on and uh, thanks for uh, spending some time with me. Um, do you hear me guys now? I'm Renzo Arauco. I am a pulmonary and critical care physician. I am uh, working in, in McAllen and Edinburgh. I am also training in land transplantation. I, I came actually from Houston uh, uh, four years ago to this area. Uh, I want to, to show you just in that map uh, where I am located. Basically, this is the south border of Texas. We are uh, basically very near Mexico. Um, I'm very near the Gulf of Mexico at the same time. Uh, next slide, please. So in, in this short uh, presentation, I will just uh, want to share with you some of the, uh, the background of my region for you to understand uh, why we were hit as hard by the pandemic uh, in, in this area. I would also like to share with you the model that we use to implement ICU services in an effective uh, way to take care of a very large uh, number of critically ill patients. I uh, would like also to talk about our local uh, convalescent plasma program that we uh, actually propose as an alternative to deal with the lack of medications and treatment, treatment options in our area. Next slide, please. Just briefly, you know, uh, over the last 20 years, uh, the Rio Grande Valley has been ranked between the first or the second uh, place in the nation for uncontrolled type 2 diabetes, morbid obesity, early coronary artery disease, 
and uh, end-stage renal disease on hemodialysis. So our population is extremely ill up front. Actually, having the sickest people that I have ever uh, deal uh, during my medical career. Uh, you can see in that slide that uh, during the uh, basically April and early May, we will handling between uh, you know three, three to twelve uh, COVID cases in our hospitals. But as soon as uh, Texas reopened, we we saw a, a rapid uh, exponential surge in the number of COVID nineteen uh, cases. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, I want to, uh, to to show you here that you know during the the peak uh, of the crisis for us that was uh, between June and, and now actually we had between 1100 to 1250 thousand uh, patients hospitalized with respiratory failure in our in our ICUs here with different you know levels of oxygen requirements. In the peak week we had 312 uh, mechanically ventilated patients. And important to mention that we are only uh, 14 board certified pulmonary and critical care physicians in the area. So for that reason, uh, each of us was uh, taking care of about 50 to 89 patients per day. So it was actually a, a monstrosity as you can imagine. Next slide, please. So, uh, so how uh, did we uh, handle this? So we, as, as you, can, you, 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 you can imagine at baseline uh, with this sick population, we are almost always uh, out of capacity, even, even between uh, before COVID hit our region, our ICU were always around 90% of capacity. So what we uh, ended doing uh, was basically to open a new, a new complete buildings that were actually strategically constructed as ICUs very quickly. Uh, our ICU uh, systems, uh, our ICU, sorry, our COVID-19 units were basically uh, subdivided in an ICU area, step down and an telemetry region in the same buildings. Basically, the, the concept that we used was a, an open ICU concept. So the primary doctors that were uh, taking care of the admissions and, and basic initial orders were actually internal medicine physicians. And we organized a multidisciplinary COVID-19 team. Uh, we are part of, a, of an academical, you know, the center, we are actually part of the University of Texas in the Rio Grande Valley. So we we actually try to do our best to preserve the multidisciplinary round concept. You know, we, we try to ensure that uh, every COVID uh, patient was seen by an intensivist, uh, a doctor in pharmacy, a respiratory therapist, uh, a nutritionist, and an ID physician at the same time. Actually, we incorporated ID as part of the rounding team in order to uh, avoid redundance and you know to, to avoid you know misusing the the nurses time that that were you know those those, those nurses were so extremely busy that was was actually essential for us to minimize minimize you know extra rounding time on, on their patients so we implemented a rapid response uh, team uh, on on each of these uh, covid units they were most of the time ER physicians uh, CRNAs that they were actually experts uh, taking care of procedures, intubations, uh, central lines. The idea of all of that was that, that the you know, intensivists and the intensive care team should not be in interrupted uh, in, in, in rounding on, on the patients in order to be able to cover this large volume of cases. Uh, obviously, we were in close communication and, and at any point when they need help with a difficult airway or a difficult procedure, we were there to help. Next slide, please. The concept of telemedicine was very important for us to assure that everybody uh, received this uh, multidisciplinary uh, care at the same time. We use telemedicine in our offices to follow the patients that we discharge after the unit, but in the ICU specifically, we use two models. We created these telemedicine stations that were basically big screens where we were able to, to see, you know, radio, uh, basically images to see the, what was happening in the ICU and three or four computers for the pharmacies, physicians, residents, or whoever was taking care of all rounds. We have telemedicine cards inside of the COVID units that had a stethoscope that allowed us to auscultate the patient from outside if we need to. In the model number one that you can see in this slide, actually I am rounding with a PharmD and, and, and a medical scribe from a different location and, and I have in the inside of the ICU an infectious disease physician, the RT and the charge nurse, and we are taking care of an, an admission. In the, in the model number two that you are seeing in the, 
in the right side, uh, I am actually in, inside of the ICU taking care of a patient that is acutely decompensating, and I have one of my senior residents outside with the PharmD. I have the procedure team with me at the bedside ready for intubation, and I have another resident with me that is starting a, a central line on the patient. We found that for uh, the most efficient way to round for us was with the intensivist all the time in, inside of the ICU. So that's actually what we finally ended doing. So the intensivist was rounding with an ICU a, a, car, a computer on wheels that was connected to a telemedicine station, and I was able to adjust the ventilator, a troubleshoot whatever I need to do there, discuss the plan, and get the input from the other, you know, provider, from the a, sometimes the ID physician that was around in from the from outside of the ICU. By this way, again, we minimize the use of PPE, we minimize unnecessary exposure of the staff. And, and we're able to provide, uh, I guess, uh, an adequate level of care to our patients. We also use telemedicine uh, as soon as we discharge these patients to uh, basically home, uh, to continue weaning them from oxygen, as sure that they continue in the, in the right track. Next slide, please. One of the main challenges, as, you can, I, I, as, as I mentioned before, was the, the lack of, of, of resources, specifically treatment options. We had a real problem uh, obtaining, uh, for example, Rendesivir for our, for our patients. We created this uh, local community-based convalescent plasma bank. And basically what we did is we created a system to, to ensure continuous availability of convalescent plasma for our, our patients in the area. It's, this is part of a research project. So we, I wrote the protocol at the beginning. Our, our, our protocol was based on obtaining a convalescent plasma from the small number of patients that were recovering at home. The local health authorities introduced this program to the patients that they were tracking, and our research team was able to consent them in order for them to donate plasma. As soon as patients start to get plasma in the ICUs and, and, and some of them re recover, you know, the, the donation uh, cycle uh, basically starts and was very successful. We uh, next slide, please. Uh, you can go to the next slide too, please. Uh, we, we, we basically were able to collect enough uh, plasma to, to supply almost 100% of the patients that were critically ill and hospitalized in our, in our community. This is a system that is, is, is actually very easy to replicate. We're still in the process of collecting our data. Uh, we actually merge uh, our, our research uh, project with the National uh, Mayo Clinic expanded access a uh, project. So we are going to be part of that trial too. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, at this point, uh, we have been able to actually distribute, as you can see, 14, uh, uh, 1,476 uh, plasma units. And we have transfused uh, 1,268 uh, critically ill patients. And that, that has been actually very successful, not only in my institution, uh, in many different institutions in the, in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, the main uh, team that actually helped us to, to run this project was the Doctor Hospital at Renaissance, that is the main um, academical center that I uh, work with, and Dr. Rao, who is uh, the director and, and of, the, of the research and development center, who have played play a, a very, very key uh, role in making this program successful. This can be easily done in, page, in places, especially outside of the United States, rural areas. Uh, we, we, we implemented something similar in Peru, that is the country that I was born. Next slide, please. So just to uh, finalize my, my short presentation, uh, what really helped us um, in the, in, in the, during the crisis was, uh, was to have a clear definition of responsibilities and, and, and roles in the different providers. We, we tried to do our best to not uh, misuse anybody's time. Uh, the telemedicine stations help a lot for us to create concise uh, plans of care, uh, unifying the, the, the experience and the points of view from different consultants in one single visit to the patient. And that was actually helpful to save nurses time. As you can imagine, every nurse was maximized and everybody was maximized. Tolerance was very important. Things were not perfect. And we, we need to adapt. We did the best we, 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 we can. And, you know, just to show a picture, you know, that in the middle of the crisis, we were heated by the Hurricane Hannah, and that day we were not able to even have telemedicine for hours or doctors to be, being able to arrive to the ICU. So, having hard, but we, we continue uh, 
working on it. So thank you so much. We'll take questions later. All right. And um, my name is Sinan Sod. I'll be presenting two example cases of tele-ICU support for rural centers in the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I'm a second year resident with the Dartmouth-Hitchcock uh, Medical Center Internal Medicine Program. I uh, obtained a master's in electrical engineering from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and got my medical degree from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Uh, next slide, please. So our first case is an 85-year-old male presenting in March 2020 who reported to his PCP that he had black tarry stools and dizziness. Next slide, please. His uh, PCP uh, recommended he present to the emergency department. In the emergency department, he confirmed that he had melana, but also reported a progressive three-day non-productive cough with a sore throat. His travel history was reviewed at that point and found to be negative uh, for any travel outside of his uh, home community, and he had no sick contacts. His review of systems was also negative for fevers and chills. Vitals at that time were notable for a temperature of 100.6, otherwise were within normal limits, and his labs showed a mild lymphocytopenia, thrombocytopenia, but a stable hemoglobin. He was admitted with a presumptive diagnosis of a gastritis with a viral URI placed on droplet precautions, and a respiratory viral panel was sent. Uh, next slide, please. This was his admission chest x-ray. It was read as having some left lower lobe atelectasis, but was otherwise deemed unremarkable. Next slide, please. Uh, on hospital day one, he underwent an EGD, which was unrevealing, and shortly afterwards developed respiratory decompensation with desaturations to the mid-80s on room air, tachycardia, and a fever of 102.7 Fahrenheit. Uh, labs at this point showed progressive lymphopenia and thrombocytopenia. He had a lactate of 1.48, and he was mildly hyponatremic. At this point, his respiratory viral panel returned negative. Uh, a COVID-19 swab was obtained out of an abundance of caution, and the patient was placed in a negative pressure room, as a, uh, but uh, he was started on empiric antibiotics for a presumed uh, aspiration event. Um, unfortunately, over the next couple days, he developed worsening uh, uh, O2 requirements and was ultimately intubated on hospital day three, transferred to the ICU under strict airborne precautions. At this point, the tele-ICU was engaged to help with the patient's management. On hospital day six, his COVID-19 test returned positive and his antibiotics were stopped. However, on hospital day seven, he uh, decompensated quite sharply, uh, converting from persistent fevers to hypothermia, uh, increasing oxygen requirements and progressive shock needing vasopressin, norepinephrine, and phenylephrine. His labs showed a worsening lactic acidosis. He had elevated troponin levels. And at this point, the patient's family was notified of his sudden deterioration. Following a fi uh, family meeting, uh, the decision was made for a terminal extubation, and the patient died shortly afterwards on hospital day eight. Next slide, please. For this case, uh, at this stage, uh, in this particular hospital, there were very few providers trained in PPE practices specific to managing COVID-19 patients. So the tele-ICU support was very important in terms of monitoring the patient's vent settings and telemetry uh, remotely to reduce PPE usage and staff entry to the restricted area. The tele-ICU staff also directed nursing and RT interventions when necessary and communicated with on-site house staff uh, for uh, placement of orders that were not a uh, that were difficult to place remotely. Um, in addition to this, teleconferencing software was used to allow the patient's family to visit him at bedside remotely, given the strict isolation precautions. This was uh, used also in his end of life conversation as well. Um, next slide, please. Our second case is a 46 year old gentleman who presented to a local emergency department with six weeks of cold-like symptoms and uh, being unable to get out of bed for about that same period of time. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, he reported developing shortness of breath with a cough uh, after a Valentine's Day limo ride with friends. Uh, shortly after that, he and his friends developed a cough, anorexia, shortness of breath, chills, as well as progressive bloody diarrhea. Patient's history was also notable for alcohol use disorder, um, though he denied having had any recently, and he denied having any fever, nausea, or vomiting. His vitals at this time were notable for tachycardia, and his physical exam showed a tremulous man with diffusely decreased breath sounds, but was otherwise non-focal. Labs demonstrated elevated LFTs, a CPK of uh, about 5,000, and a lactate of 2.9. His chest x-ray at this point 
demonstrated diffuse airspace disease, and he was admitted to hospital medicine with a presumed viral pneumonia, uh, hepatic injury, and rhabdomyolysis. Was, he was also placed on CWA protocol uh, out of an abundance of caution. A COVID-19 test um, was obtained. Actually, next slide, please. So this was his admission chest x-ray. He also had a CTA chest with demonstrated ground glass opacity and patchy airspace opacities. At that point, a COVID-19 test was obtained. Um, uh, next slide, please. He was started on uh, empiric antibiotics, but was maintained well on nasal cannula for day one, and then uh, was initially slated for transfer to another facility. He subsequently uh, decompensated with agitation and increasing oxygen requirements, and his chest x-ray showed worsening consolidation. Um, he was uh, subsequently sedated with broadening antibiotics, uh, culminating in an intubation on hospital day three and a transfer to the local facility's ICU under negative pressure precautions. He was then ventilated on ARDSNAP protocol. Thankfully, he, um, uh, during this process, his COVID-19 test returned positive, but he was able to be extubated on hospital day eight, and he was discharged uh, on hospital day 23. Next slide, please. This was his chest x-ray at the time of his intubation on hospital day three. Uh, next slide, please. In this uh, case, as this happened uh, in March, near the start of the uh, nationwide pandemic, no protocols were in safe locally for the safe transfer of suspected or confirmed COVID-19 patients between facilities, requiring the patient to remain at the admitting facility, which was quite small and had a limited number of uh, resources. It did have access to the tele-ICU, which proved instrumental. His intubation on hospital day three was made somewhat difficult uh, by the institution's inexperience with patient paralysis for intubation. To overcome this, the DHMC ICU was contacted uh, for assistance. The tele-ICU team created an order set for initiating and maintaining paralysis uh, for, the, for the admitting facility, and the intubation was supervised via tele-equipment by the DHMC ICU staff. Incidentally, vecuronium had to be obtained from the facility's OR to facilitate the paralysis, and the patient was successfully intubated on hospital day three. Um, and next slide, please. And that's it for my section. Thank you. Hello, my name is Meryl Day. I'm the nurse manager for Tele-ICU and thank you for joining today. I am here to talk about a little bit more about how we supported and continue to support those patients that are at the more rural facilities in our area. Next slide, please. Um, one thing that we started doing within our program when we started seeing an influx of patients at Dartmouth was reporting out daily the number of patients that we had in our own ICU as well as our regional sites to provide awareness to our um, hospital leadership and our own program of the impact that was having on our region and just see if we were having increased trends um, overall within the region as well as at our hospital and potentially anticipate when we might surge within our own hospital. Uh, as you can see, we had a little bit of activity uptick uh, in early April, um, but have been very fortunate to have uh, very few patients here within our region. Next slide, please. Uh, one of the biggest things that we really focus on with um, supporting our hospital, our regional hospitals is with the clinical burnout. It helps also at our own hospital at Dartmouth. Our medical intensivists have noticed that the burden of overnight call is significantly reduced. They provide coverage to our MICU team at nighttime and prevent uh, a lot of the nighttime calls that they would normally get, as well as they take all of the um, regional transfer center calls um, for our primary MICU team. Uh, our regional sites, Cheshire Medical Center, has seen an improvement in nursing retention and recruitment since it has started up with tele-ICU. And then at Southwest Vermont Medical Center, um, we've seen that the uh, tele-ICU positions have supported them uh, and their hospitalists in being able to prioritize what they need to do at the bedside while they are also being supported with their other patients within their ICU so that they can take care of all of their patients since they are covering a large um, area within their hospital. Next slide, please. It has also helped to increase um, and standardize the quality of care. 
uh, we have shared a lot of protocols um, and standardized them across our rural hospitals, especially when we've gotten these sicker COVID patients to support them. Uh, we also are improving our regional um, referral pattern. So it's allowing us to help uh, with those sites with getting uh, the patients in a region to the right location sometimes, which is not our hospital. We do have a process where we redirect patients to other hospitals if they're appropriate for that. Um, at both of our sites, we were able to prone patients for the first time. So we assisted with the um, nursing and physician support, as well as protocol support and proning those patients. Um, and then also providing them with sedation and analgesia to complement that. Next slide, please. Uh, so back to that a little bit. Um, with the outside hospitals having a really rural area limited support, they were very out of their comfort zone with having these patients that were so sick and requiring um, paralytics and sedations in amounts that they were not used to. One of our states uh, utilized a continuous paralytic infusion for the first time and really relied on the expertise and support and guidance of our staff with monitoring that patient's um, level of paralytic and then titrating it. Um, and they were very glad to have a backup support of that. Uh, as far as proning, we were able to provide them with our own protocols um, and also some videos that were appropriate examples of proning patients and then provided direct observation through the tele-ICU equipment while, as a second set of eyes while they were proning the patient. Um, as well as we provided increased surveillance and monitoring of COVID-19 patients as well as any other uh, acutely ill patients that were within the unit at that time. Some challenges that we have faced is communication. Um, it's really difficult to communicate with all of the increased PPE um, through the tele-ICU equipment because you can't hear and you can't see what people are saying. So we've come up with some somewhat creative ways to try to communicate with one another using whiteboards, uh, pen and paper, and also utilizing any of the secure chat systems that we have. Next slide. Um, this just brings it back to our overall goals of our program is keeping care local and supporting our uh, local hospitals to keep the patients there even if it's something that they're not particularly comfortable with, um, providing higher standardized quality of care, lowering mortality rates, uh, less clinical burnout for all the staff, including nursing and physicians, higher contribution margins by allowing them to keep their patients at their hospital, lower operational costs, um, that also can help with a little bit of the nursing retention, more clinical collaboration, and then decreasing the length of stay. Thank you. Great. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate it. We're, uh, we're actually doing great on time. So we're down to the uh, last 10 minutes here, and we're going to uh, hop into some uh, Q&As. Uh, we have some questions that were submitted before uh, the uh, for the webinar, so we'll uh, get to those, but we'll actually start with a couple of those that were submitted online. So I appreciate those of you who were talking. So uh, Dr. Surgeoner, one of the questions that came in is, uh, how about the impact of tele-ICU and, uh, and CMS? Can you describe a little bit about the billing prospects and uh, current issues around billing and tele-ICU? Uh, I'll, I'll do my best with that one, uh, Jim. It's, it's, it's a tricky area because these uh, regulations are dense and complicated to understand, but at a, at a high level, there's no question that uh, the federal government made it easier to use telehealth uh, billing uh, in a very similar way to we, what we would do normally at the bedside uh, when the pandemic hit. And that uh, temporary order is being proposed as a permanent solution within these new rules for 2021. The, the problem here is that the, there is a, a, a complete budget neutrality of the, of the provider payment system as we have been facing for many years. Uh, and so if you're getting, a, getting this benefit, you may be losing some other uh, prior benefit uh, somewhere else in your life with uh, perhaps 
some of the things you do on an outpatient basis. I can say for me, the American Society of Anesthesiologists is not in favor of the reductions that will occur in the operating room for anesthesia services, as an example. So in other words, we may gain something here, but as a profession, uh, we're probably overall staying neutral because that is actually the goal of the budget. Great, thanks. Yeah, for sure, that's a uh, that's a moving target. Uh, we're really happy to have uh, Sanan on, one of the uh, residents with us. Um, Sanan, can you tell us a little bit about the impact that uh, COVID-19's had on your training and uh, and uh, both at the bedside and perhaps how um, tele-ICU might be able to support your folks? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, uh, it's been interesting, and I think from speaking with my uh, med school classmates across the country, it's been somewhat very. It's definitely been uh, very uh, interesting to see kind of a pandemic unfold in front of you and see how that affects hospital policy very quickly. Um, so uh, it's the the policy aspect has been very interesting for a lot of residents to to learn about. In terms of at the bedside, we've seen uh, a rapid shift in how patients are triaged into the hospital. So as a result, uh, at least at DHMC, whenever someone comes in, they uh, if they're being admitted, they're swabbed for COVID and based on their symptoms, they're uh, placed in isolation, even if it's a lower suspicion. So um, we've learned to kind of deal with some of like the communication um, issues that uh, Mariel described in terms of shouting through a North 7700 uh, respirator at a hard of hearing patient in the clinical decision unit. Um, so we've learned kind of more clear uh, communication strategies for, for um, interacting with patients. And uh, we've learned to kind of have a add things to our differential dynamically as new research comes out on how the how the condition presents um, in terms of just trying to make sure that we keep ourselves and the rest of our patients in the hospital safe. So it's been um, a pretty varied experience, uh, but we've, we've definitely, I, I think a lot of us are coming out as better clinicians from it. In terms of how tele-ICU can support uh, residents, um, the tele-ICU at DHMC is fantastic because especially for me, I'm currently uh, working in the ICU um, and having the tele-ICU backing us up at night for new admissions and for current patients is extremely helpful because having the second set of eyes uh, going over vitals, going over labs um, really helps us kind of be more at ease that if there's something that we miss as thorough as we try to be, um, we, we have uh, backup for that. And um, we also have the option to contact tele-ICU at any time if we have concerns. So in, in the age of COVID, um, especially in the ICU, there's a higher index of suspicion whenever someone presents with an unusual um, collection of symptoms. So having the tele-ICU supporting us in this situation, in those situations has been extremely, extremely helpful. So, yeah. Excellent. Thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah. So we'll uh, move on. We had a question about, um, rural hospitals and initiating triage protocols once they've been overwhelmed. So, with that in, in mind, uh, Vinka, Dr. Chow, um, what might be some strategies to strengthen rural health systems? Because obviously our goal is to not get involved in the triage crisis standards of care. Yeah, um, I haven't been able to come across any hard data with quantitative, that quantitative number of rural hospitals that have had to initiate certain protocols and such, but certainly um, the AHA and the, um, also the Rural Health Association are documenting just anecdotal stories or stories of how each county and hospitals are faring um, and the creative innovative measures that they're using to combat the surge and encourage um, commute or and encourage community members to decrease transmission in a way that is um, kind of fitted to their needs. And um, certainly, you know, the, and, um, you know, uh, positive or not, um, a lot of rural um, areas have had the experience of needing to prepare for um, emergencies and disasters with hurricanes and such that would, um, that these areas would encounter. And so they do have experience and some sort of infrastructure to start off with in, um, in um, initiating and implementing triage protocols. Um, and as we're looking forward, certainly it's a multi-pronged approach to help strengthen these um, rural systems. Um, ultimately, you know, the persistent and also new challenges boil down to um, hospital margins and finances and um, in terms of impact on hospital closure. 
So the traditional fee-for-service model may not be a sustainable reimbursement system for rural areas since you know, they have um, decreasing rates of um, inpatient stay with how, uh, be- how much better we are at managing many conditions on an outpatient basis um, and also just a decreasing um, population um, demographics in rural areas. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, also the low utilization rates for many um, infrequently used services. So in Pennsylvania, um, the rural, they have developed a rural health model launched in 2017. Uh, it now has 13 participating hospitals. Um, so they have adopted this global payment bundle care approach where the hospitals get this um, uh, bundle, uh, this global payment from CMS and other payers. And um, they... Now, so you know, their goal is to um, decrease utilization of these services while um, of expensive services while improving the health outcomes of the population. And so, um, you know, with lower using um, home visiting services and um, um, strengthening outpatient services to overall decrease health expenditure. Um, and this is particularly suited, especially for rural areas where there are elderly patients who otherwise would have to travel at least like 30 miles or in some cases 100 miles to get to the nearest facility. And um, so, yeah, um, and another aspect would be, um, uh, as I had mentioned, the, um, the low utilization rate of certain services. So adjusting regulatory uh, regulations that um, mandate uh, what a hospital's requirements are. It doesn't make sense for the same standards to apply for a urban hospital with hundreds of beds um, as a rural hospital that has only 25 beds. And um, lastly, you know, we have Certainly, telehealth has skyrocketed and will continue to be important. But a huge limitation for rural areas is actually the ability to have internet access. One of the panelists we wanted to invite actually couldn't join us because where he's working today doesn't have enough internet. And so, um, something like the New Deal that happened in the 1930s when the when rural America got electricity, um, a similar initiative with federal aid to provide broadband internet access to all of rural America can help to maintain um, a stronger or build a stronger telehealth system that can provide um, better care of chronic health conditions and keep these patients um, from utilizing more expensive uh, hospital services. Great, thanks. Um, thank you, I appreciate that. Um, one other thing for uh, the triage criteria is I refer people to a recent paper by Ryan Maves, M-A-V-E-S, and Chest, which talked about the uh, triage criteria um, and also some uh, issues regarding that, both uh, implementation, philosoph- philosophical, and uh, organizational. So um, that would be a great paper for you to review. We're, we're almost running out of time here. I'd like to uh, lastly ask um, Mariel um, how – how you think tele-ICU has been able to help nurses. You talked a little bit about the, um, about the paralytics, but what is a you know, quick one or two lessons that you've learned before we sign off here and how it might help? Yeah, um, really, you know, being that second set of eyes to help them um, with these patients that are a lot sicker than they're used to having and help walking them through titrating the amounts of uh, sedation and balancing sedation with ARDNET protocol ventilator settings and getting the patient to the right level of sedation so that they are being ventilated adequately, which is something that's kind of new for some of these hospitals, as well as the reduce of PPE usage um, and just preventing a second person from needing to go into the room at our own facility. We were able to initiate um, tele-ICU being the second signature as far as um, dual sign-off medications and blood, which uh, was quite a bit of the medications that our COVID patients were getting. So it was really nice to be able to provide that additional layer of support for them. 
Uh, great. Uh, one last question. We have to sign off here in a second. Any effect of telehealth on getting travelers or surge staffing healthcare providers to rural areas? I could tell you that uh, moving providers around the country can prove really challenging. And I would offer that tele-ICU is actually kind of a force or staff multiplier. And that if you can't get staff to come in to help your organization, then having a tele-ICU nurse be able to help a bedside uh, slash normal internal medicine, uh, post-op surgery patients, uh, those kind of nurses out in rural settings tell ICU you can actually help expand their capabilities. So that might help mitigate some of the impact on trying to get people coming in. So that's kind of where um, that might be useful in helping. So I apologize. We're gonna, we've run out of time here. And uh, thank you all for joining us on this great uh, topic discussing the care for patients in rural settings. Hopefully for some of you who may have joined on internationally, a lot of this will also apply to sort of in resource poor settings. There are several papers out there as well. And uh, we appreciate thinking about how tele-ICU might be able to support folks uh, in, in all of these settings. So thank you all very much. I hope you all have a great day and uh, stay safe out there.